It's a great pleasure to introduce you to Boris Fishman. Uh, he's an award-winning novelist from Belarus. Uh, his uh, novels include A Replacement Life, uh, which won lots of awards, and Don't Let My Baby Do Rodeo, both were New, New York Times notable books of the year. Savage Feast, a family memoir told through recipes, will be out this year. His journalism has appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, and many other publications. He lives in New York, but as we find out, he's just moved, uh, perhaps temporarily, perhaps permanently, to Virginia. Boris, a, a very uh, warm welcome to you. Um, just give us a little background to your current move. And your Light from state. coronavirus oh, and some, some friends who have a big farm uh, between Richmond and Williamsburg oh. uh, invited us to stay in a converted hen house. Oh. So oh. that's where I'm speaking to you from. How is that working out for you? Um, it was, I, I've been here before, but it was sort of the last place I expected to end up. Um, but serendipity has its value. It's lovely here. I mean, I've been wanting to leave New York for a long time, especially since having a child. Yeah. And here we're surrounded by grass, fresh air, animals. Oh, nice. uh, my, da my daughter's happy, so. It's really nice. That's 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 good. Sometimes you can get get a break from something, you know, uh, that doesn't have to be all bad. Uh, there's some um, good parts to it. You have to look hard sometimes, but. Um, so, Boris, what kind of free time do you have to uh, to think about these quarantine issues? I actually um, have very little free time. At the moment, partly because leaving New York has meant losing childcare, oh, okay. and so my wife, my wife is a therapist. She's lost half her clients, but only half, and so that half that remains, those hours, I'm taking care of our daughter. Mm -hmm. So, which leaves me uh, not enough time to do the work that I'm supposed to do uh, creatively. So it ends up being a very full day, and I'm lucky if I have an hour that I need to. Uh, find distraction for. Um, okay. That said, um, I I'm I'm teaching a class, um, uh, and the meaning of the class it's um, it's for a synagogue in central New Jersey, and it started out in person and now it's um, remote. And the name of the class is uh, morality, meaning, and the occasional mensch. <laughs> what Jewish and non-Jewish film and literature tell us about living honestly. And um, we've reached this point in the class when we're um, doing probably the heaviest stretch, both in terms of uh, how much reading we're doing, in terms of the intensity of the questions involved, um, and the two books that we're reading for the next class, which takes pl place next Saturday, which have occupied me for the last week to two weeks is uh, Sophie's Choice by William Styron, if you know it. Yeah. And uh, King of the Jews by Leslie Epstein. Oh, I don't, I don't know if you know it. No, I don't know that one. No. Uh, King of the Jews is a portrait of um, a gentleman named uh, Isaiah Trumpelman, who is a kind of avatar of Haim Rumkowski, who was the head of the, uh, the Judenrat, the Jewish council in, the, in a Polish ghetto in the city of Łódź. Um, this was the person who um, helped the Nazis figure out who would go when. 
to put it most. Uh, and I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very co- morally complicated portrait to draw. Leslie Epstein is a hero for having taken it on. He's also additionally a brilliant writer just from a craft point of view. He got a lot of flack for daring to represent a Jew as something other than a victim. Uh, a Holocaust character. He, he he wrote this, if I'm not mistaken, in the 70s. So there's a lot to talk about with that book, whereas Sophie's Choice um, is just one of the towering books of 20th century literature. Styron does not get talked about that much. But Styron, to me, is fascinating because we're talking a lot about cultural appropriation and who has the right to tell what stories, blah, blah, blah. And all those questions are very valid, and they're very valid to be asked. I hope that they come up only because the author in question has not done an adequate job of representing another culture. Because what you have with Styron, speaking of Virginia, is a whiter-than-white Virginian from the Tidewater region who took on the question of slavery in the Confessions of Nat Turner in in, uh, 67, and then the question of the Holocaust in Sophie's Choice in 78. Um, and not only did he take on the Holocaust, um, he sort of, it it was a kind of double provocation on his part in that he chose to, he chose a non-Jewish central protagonist, right? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, it was a provocation for those Jews who feel the Holocaust belongs to them, Mm -hmm. just to put it very bluntly. In another sense, it was a bid for another perspective on their part, which is, um, look, Look at how many companions you have in your suffering. Um, so I, I view that as a kind of uh, uh, an extended hand rather than as an affront. Um, so that's books. Um, <clears throat> sometimes we watch movies to go along with the books, and we'll be watching Sophie's Choice for the next um, for the next installment. But I'm really excited for the fourth and final class, which will come after this one. And in that class, we'll actually be talking about my first novel. And my first novel, without saying too much about it, takes place in the Russian neighborhoods of Brooklyn, New York. And I've asked the people in class to watch two movies. One of them is Two Lovers by James Gray, if I'm not mistaken. It's a James Gray film. James Gray has just become a very well-known name thanks to the Brad Pitt movie that he made, Ad Astra, which I think is one of the worst films ever made. My wife and I actually walked out in the middle of the film, um, and I was stunned to see it praised in 2019 end-of-the-year lists. Utterly mystifying. Um, But James Gray has otherwise made really good movies. Two Lovers is one of them. Joaquin Phoenix in a kind of very un-Joaquin Phoenix-like role. Gwyneth Paltrow in a very un-Gwyneth Paltrow-like role. Um, and there are people in Brooklyn with, with sort of their, if I remember correctly, their second or third generation, uh, descendants of Russian Jews. But the second movie that I've asked the class to watch, which is actually one of the best films I've seen in years, in years, you know how sometimes you come across a film and it just redefines your understanding of what film can do. It redefines, it just reinstills your sense of faith in humanity. I feel like it is, it, it is not about anything having to do with coronavirus. Um, but if this movie doesn't ratchet up your sense of faith and confidence in humanity, I, I don't know what will. It's called Give Me Liberty. And it's a very small movie. 
Um, it didn't get a lot of attention. I watched it only because it was sort of like in the honorable mention section of some end of the year lists. And I decided to give it a shot. Um, it's made by uh, uh, sort of a filmmaking team in Milwaukee. It is on the surface about a day in the life of a young man in Milwaukee with my roots, Russian Jewish, who drives uh, uh, a kind of an accessoride van. He drives people who can't make it on their own to medical appointments, right? Yeah. Nothing about what I've said suggests um, the, the sort of the, the incredible heart that this movie has, um, the way it sort of navigates the line between tenderness and, and, and the roughness that we all experience every day in our lives, um, and the, the way the characters are handled, the sense of humor, just the poignancy of it, the way it's shot, is just one of the most incredible things I've seen in a very long time. Can't wait to see it. Is that on Netflix or anything like that? Or Absolutely, yeah. It's oh. streaming. It's streaming everywhere. It's a funny thing. You know, I'm not exactly a social media maven, yeah. but when I saw this film, I, I, I wrote a very passionate, long post about it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and several people in the comments said, well, where do you find it? <clears throat> where, does any, where does anyone find anything these days? Streaming. I mean, you just go online and you type it in and you get your answers. Um, so that takes care of books and movies that feels... So um, I like... I can be quite hard on myself and I, and I hold myself responsible uh, in a very harsh way for... Uh, this will make sense in a second. Um, for things I see as mistakes I've made. Um the coronavirus has had many very negative consequences for all sorts of things in my life, which I can go into. Um, but I, in, in this case, unlike some others, um, I literally, I literally could not have affected in any way its arrival in our lives. And I guess fortunately, just because of quirks in my psychology, that has freed me to move through this time without a sense of second-guessing, without a sense of guilt. Like, for example, we own an apartment in New York, and we would like to leave New York. And we put that apartment up for sale in the first weekend of March. A lot of people came to the open house, because it's a nice apartment, and it looked like it was going to sell. And this very complicated situation that we wanted to get out of was going to resolve itself very quickly and in our favor. And then coronavirus struck. And all of that went to zero immediately. In the grand scheme of things, people trying to heal people in hospitals, this is, this is meaningless. But I'm fortunate enough to have to worry about this. Um, but there's nothing I can do about it, right? So one moves through this in a kind of strange estrangement, right? Like you, you there's, there's nothing you, you could have, have done. Yeah, you just have to right. accept that's fate going on. Right. And, and there's this kind of bizarre suspension, right? We're all forced to live in the present. Um, and if anything, it's made me feel that Buddhism, or at least that part of Buddhism, is really overrated. I don't want to live in the present. So many of my days sort of receive their magic from fantasies about the very different way I'm going to live my life tomorrow. 
or the day after tomorrow or the year after tomorrow. I'm finally going to, I'm finally going to get that job on the line in a restaurant and take my cooking from the decent home cook level to professional uh, grunt level. Or I'm finally going to go and hike the West, the West Highland Way in Scotland, right? Like these fantasies, just the, the, the they've, they're, they're, they've, they had, the, the light hasn't gone out, but they're a little ember-like, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when your days are, are, are going to be the same in and out, um, maybe I was too quick to criticize and to criticize sort of, uh, forced, a forced being in the present because you have no choice. Um, and I must say that it helps to be in a place like this one mm-hmm. where very little changes from day to day. It is the antithesis of New York city. Right. Every day you've got the trees, the grass, the pond, the animals, the paths, and that's it. Um, and in a place like New York, um, you start moving at its speed. And uh, it's part of the reason I wanted to leave. Right. It, is, it is impossible to find tranquility in New York City. It is a very exciting place. It is a very unnatural place. Mm-hmm. And so for somebody like me, I'm disposed to a place like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and believe me, it has nothing to do with coronavirus, the fact that we get to spend our evenings reading Sophie's Choice and watching Give Me Liberty. It has to do with uh, the fact that there's time for this here. So it's hard for me to escape the fact that coronavirus right, has been a blessing in many ways because we are fortunate enough not to be on the front lines of the public health situation. I have to make that yeah, sort of absolutely. caveat. That did not answer your question no. at all. Well, but it's, it's sort of the way you're, you're, you're viewing things now. Uh, it's giving you time. It's giving you this, this uh, ability to maybe think a little deeper about some of these issues than you would otherwise have been able to think about them. That's right. That's right. It's sort of it's forcing me to stop fantasizing and live in the moment. Yeah. Um, but it, it gives, by virtue of where I am, I have more tools. I have better tools to do that than I've ever to do that successfully than I ever have. And what, what tools are those? It's just, it's just your ability to sustain attention for a while. To to yeah. nature, nature, nature. That tool yeah. is that tool is nature. That's what, I, that's, yeah. I, I, that's what I'm thinking. That when I go outside to take a long walk, uh, you know, there is a uh, which I've never given myself the luxury during the week to do that on a regular basis. Uh, this, it is a very uh, you know a special experience. I'm finding it more pleasurable than ever. I mean, it helps that it's the spring. I don't think we would have had such a good reaction, as it were, to this horrible epidemic, if that's possible to say, if it had taken place in winter. This is a beautiful time of year. I agree agree with you completely. I've thought about that a lot as well. Mm. A walk is one of the best things a creative person can do. All All sorts of things arise when you're moving that don't arise when you're still. Um, the problem is that in New York City, it is never productive to take a walk, at least for me, because um, your attention is pulled in a million different directions, right? right? Whereas in a quiet rural place, uh, things around you become invisible very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, and, and um, 
we here we live in one place, but I work in another that's a 10 minute walk away and, and I come home for lunch. So I have four 10 minute walks, oh. uh, 10 to 15 minutes in the course of a day that are just incredible palate cleansers, you know, mm-hmm. spiritual palate cleansers. Um, so that's, that's a major part of it. And, um, I do notice myself reaching for the phone less. I I notice myself being less impatient to check email. Mm -hmm. Somehow everything feels less urgent. Right. I think, I think it is, it's it's a detoxification as it were. And it's also, uh, it kind of connects you with the past in a way, because this is how people lived most of the time. They didn't live in such a hectic kind of way, um, and, and it, it 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 sort of asks you it, it it spurs you to ask certain questions like, well, look this this thing this thing can happen again, and and you know what we have a relatively mild version of a pandemic. Sure. Um, things could be a lot worse. Now, what are some other things we take for granted? We take water for granted. We take, uh, I don't know, sewers for granted. Mm-hmm. And you start asking yourself, well, what am I going to do if there's no water coming out of the faucet? What am I going to do if we do have disruptions in the supply chain for food? Or, or prescriptions, medications that we rely on. It's, that's Really good scary. point. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And so, we, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say that like one of, it's both a beautiful and a really scary aspect of the modernity, the version of modernity that we have. We are we are less self-sufficient than we've ever been. Right, we're dependent on a global supply chain. It's very clear, and um, so there. I don't want to get too political, but the Trump supporters want to have us believe that we can be independent and isolated from the rest of the world. But there's no way we can. We are totally entangled with the world. And but I got to tell you that that when sort of. Everybody was always sort of a lot of people were talking about the the other shoe dropping and Trump finally having to face a real crisis. But I don't think anyone imagined that the crisis could be like this. Maybe there would be a tussle with Iran. Maybe there would be a spike in oil prices. But nobody imagined 40,000 Americans dead and this thing is far from over. I just see him. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, it, it seems to be a script written by a pretty crazy author. This whole Trump presidency seems it's, to be. <laughs> what is a novelist supposed to do <laughs> at this time? <laughs> what is a novelist supposed to do? It's, he, every time you think it's going to go, it can't get any crazier and he can't be more amoral. He goes a different direction. He just totally stupefies you. <laughs> That's exactly so. We are in uncharted territory. Uncharted. But um, should we go on to music and uh, podcasts? What else have we left? Uh, TV shows. I guess we kind of covered that a little bit. But go ahead. I'm going to move through these quickly just because um, you had your dog scratching at your door. My daughter. Oh, your daughter. My daughter. Refuses to go to sleep. I can oh. hear her wailing. Oh, um, gotcha. I will. I will tell you that uh, TV-wise, um, my wife and I very devotedly watch Better Call Saul, which is oh. the prequel to Breaking Bad. Okay. And if you want to see what sophistication in art making looks like, 
Well, if you want to see what the absence of pandering looks like, if you want to see what the opposite of the unorthodox sensibility looks like, watch this show. Okay. Not only the acting, but the writing. The writing is so nuanced. It's so smart about it's 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 about what people are really like rather than the reductive version we typically get from television and movies. Yeah. And all of this is being done by a show that is the equivalent of a page turner. You can't stop watching it. It's so full of suspense. And and it's 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 close to the ground, man. It's about cartels, it's about sort of uh shoddy lawyers like it's it's not about sort of academics and ivory towers um it's a brilliant show podcasts i've never understood never understood podcasts don't don't really understand i guess maybe if you're driving a long time on your commute yeah you got to listen to the pod because uh for me it has to be a really riveting podcast to keep your attention um but typically i'm listening to it while doing something else and you know, if for me, I mean, let's say, let's say I'm cooking. If I'm cooking, 50% of my attention is on the cooking and only 50 is on the podcast. So I miss half of the things they say. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, right, it's right. Not as, it's, not. it's not as compelling as a movie because a movie has words and images. The podcast has only words. So you basically have to sit in an armchair, stare at the wall and listen. And that really raises the bar and few of them meet it, you know? Um, you have to be really, really interested in a subject um, or in the personality involved. I happen to also strongly dislike the voice sensibility that these days prevails as the ideal or the norm in podcasts, like the, uh, uh, the Ira Glass standard. Yes. <laughs> I, can't, I can't stand Ira Glass. <laughs> I'm sure he's a fine man. A fine I guy. cannot stand him as my as my uh, podcast host. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same goes for the guy. I, I sort of I, I've read all these um, um, hagiographic hey um, uh, testimonials about the gentleman who hosts the Daily, the New York Times podcast. Yeah. And the first time I, I listened to it, I thought it was a parody of a podcast, or his yeah. voice was a parody of a certain kind of nasal junior high school Brooklyn vibe. But no, this is actually what passes for. Give me Jonathan Schwartz. Do you do you remember Jonathan Schwartz? No, I don't. WQXR classical classical okay. radio station um, in in New York. Um gonna throw a curveball your way in the music department. Yes. How about no I was gonna I'll say like I I I I um I recently become really curious about wine. A friend of mine makes wine in California. I've, I've just become really into it. And there's a podcast called I'll Drink to That okay. by a guy named Levy Dalton uh, that I do listen to. Um, he's a particular dude, but it is replete with information that sort of an undereducated wine drinker like me is just so hungry for. Mm-hmm. Um, Music-wise, mm-hmm. my wife and I die for uh, glam rock. Hair metal, 1980s, maybe 90s. And the reason why has everything to do with coronavirus, I think, though, though the reason why has been true for a long time. It's, it's just happy music. It is silly, happy music that's extremely rhythmic and melodic, and it makes you want to shake your hair, if I, if I had any. And just, 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 just a good day. Is there one and, song that you like? 
one one track. Or? We we what? love probably the least cool band of them all, which is uh, which is a British band, which is Def Leppard. Oh. And they have a song called "Stand Up, Kick Love Into Motion." That is just a fun, fun song that we love. Okay. Good. And um, I think we have one last category. Yeah. Don't we? Well, I, I I could go to poetry. That could be one one category. What were you thinking of? Um, well, we've talked about books. We've talked about movies. We've talked about TV. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about podcasts. I have your list right here. Yeah. I'm just going to check it. Um, <clears throat> Movies, TV, albums, books, podcasts, and poems. I like that you, that poems and books yeah. are two different categories for you. Right. Because, yeah. Um, is, is, yeah. So, if I could, if I could um, leave you with one name. Yes. Um, it would be the poet Tony Hoagland, um, who died at a too young an age from cancer. And... Uh, Tony Hoagland wrote poems. Um, they were written in English. I, I read a lot of poetry and, and, and end up with questions about what language it's actually written in and for whom. Um, a lot of contemporary poetry strikes me as um, a beautiful pose whose heart I can't detect. It may very well have a rich beating heart. I'm unable to detect it. I'm unable to connect to it on any level other than intellectual. And that's not enough. And I would say that I would say that, that is also true for a lot of contemporary successful fiction as well. I need a heart. Um, and I need to understand. And um, there are certain poets, like Billy Collins, I think, who are sometimes too easy to understand. Tony Hoagland does not fall into that category. If If you... Um, if I can recommend one poem by Tony Hoagland, um, it's a poem called Lucky. And, and the understanding of human nature that pervades that poem, while also, being, while also using the simplest language imaginable, but very often in unexpected ways, um, that's what I want poetry to do for me. And ever since he's died... Um, I think his poetry is taken on a whole different level of resonance. Um, and um, it is incredibly um, it is incredibly funny poetry, which is not something you feel often in poetry. Um, and it's incredibly moving. And it is also completely taken up with big questions, particularly since he got cancer. Um, some of his cancer poems and essays are just incredibly striking. Um, and so, so basically the common thread I see in the things I'm sharing with you yeah. is that there's less and less time for bullshit. If I, if I may be forgiven for yeah. speaking in that way, I'll, I'll just, um, I'll just finish my monologue with this one little story. Um, so my wife and I were leaving New York and I called the moving company. And I expected them to tell me, they're, they're based in Florida, we've used them several times, I expected them to tell me that they're, just, that they're in a holding pattern until things loosen up. And they told me that they're busier than ever. And I said, why? And uh, Monica, the, the sort of one of the senior people there whom I speak to, she said, people are moving to their forever places. They, they understand that you can't 
keep waiting for the moment when it'll finally be right to take that chance. I come from people, understandably, immigrants, who have left all the fun for retirement. Well, my mom and my dad are months away from retirement, and their retirement accounts just went to zero. And you just, you have to, you have to spend your time wisely. Um, This period has made me, you know, we've talked about the arts and what the arts can do to help us move through this time, but the arts are only a small part of it. This moment has, has not redefined, but altered the way I think of friendships. Whom do you call at this time? Whom do you check in with this time? Whom does it now feel frivolous to bother talking to, to spend your time talking to, right? Um, And in the same way, um, whatever feels meaningful to you, whatever is meaningful to you can be frivolous to me. It might feel really meaningful to you to spend 20 hours of your day listening to the guy who hosts The Daily. God bless you. If that's your thing, do it. Um, but the really intense thing about this moment is New York city is full of people who, for whom, whose lives in New York consist almost entirely of the pleasures that New York has to give. And they're considerable, uh, couplings, uh, romantic and platonic groupings, romantic and platonic theater, restaurants, music, um, and now so much of that has gone away, right? It's sort of, it's sort of like, it's as if unorthodox did not have uh, an ethnographically compelling storyline to lean on. When you take those things out of New York, what's left? Right? It forces you to ask yourself what your connection to the place is, if any. Um, and it just, the whole moment forces you to dig deeper in so many ways. Um, and we had the luxury of living a lot more frivolously. And for a person who comes from the Soviet Union, where life was never frivolous, even when you were laughing up a storm, <laughs> that's part of what made life in America such a, such a difficult fit sometimes. Okay. So mo- moments like this, when, when things are hard and complicated, this is roughly how they feel to me, even when things are fine. And I'm actually really alienated then because I don't understand why everyone else isn't taking things as alarmingly as I am. And now everyone is. And so I feel a lot, actually, a lot less alienated than I typically do, weirdly. I don't know if that makes sense. That makes but, a lot of sense. You so, feel more connected to your past and, and to, to the fundamentals of what life is because nothing is guaranteed. No, tomorrow is not guaranteed. Nothing is. Uh, we we live this illusion of, uh, as you said, you know uh, earlier, about every day being different and certain things are, are going to happen. You live in the future. Your your passion is in the future, not in the present. And uh, now you have to rethink that that strategy uh, and realize what you have. The only thing you have right now is the now. And to use it as, uh, and use it uh, the way. Uh, don't don't waste this time. Just find the, the things that you value and are important and, and mean something to you and others. And also spread a little little happiness to others, I guess, because everybody else is feeling the same stress and tension. And it's our duty, I think, to try to reach out to 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 find that connection with with other people. 
and maybe you find a deeper connection that way because of that. Because you, are, you know, we we can't touch each other right now, so we're forced to interact non-superficially. Yes. Uh, not that touch is superficial; touch is critical. I just I mean I mean that in the literal sense. We have to go beyond the skin to what's inside. Um, and I'm just I'm just so so curious uh, about the way in which our world will change yes. um, um, as we begin to move out of this. Um, and I think it is going to change. But fundamentally, uh, hopefully in November, there will be a major change, a significant change. And uh, if that happens, I, I do believe that the society will move uh, more into figuring out human values. Because we, we spent... What what occurs to me is that we spent all those trillion dollars on weapon systems that we didn't need. We knew were useless. We could blow up the world several times, and uh, we were just stockpiling the worst things out, and not stockpiling things that would actually save people's lives. We didn't have stockpile ventilators, didn't stockpile PPE, didn't stockpile anything that was actually useful. We stockpile weapons. Don't get me started. I'll just say that come November, I'm voting for Angela Merkel. That's all. <laughs> yeah. She's a sensible one of the pack. I agree. Um, look, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I, Thank I, you so I, much for been, your interest. I appreciate it. It's been a very serious uh, conversation on what I hoped that would happen. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's huge uh, to have the, your commitment to talking authentically and honestly about what's going on. And, and I think that will resonate with lots of people. So I, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you, Boris. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Take right. care. Lots of love. Thank you. We've got a lot of very good upcoming episodes, including Joan Wickersham and also Stella Duffy. Uh, can't wait for you to listen to some of those. Bye for now.